Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we want you to open them up and turn in them to Colossians chapter number 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can grab that Bible and turn in it in the back portion of page 157, and you would find yourself at Colossians chapter 1. When I was growing up, we, we moved frequently, and one of the advantages to moving frequently is that you have time markers in your life, uh, that you will have certain memories and those memories are often connected with the place where you lived, and because you knew you lived in a certain place at a certain age, it's very much easier to calculate your age uh, related to those memories. And uh, when I was the age of 11 through the age of 17, my family lived in Overland Park, Kansas, which is uh, one of the suburbs of Kansas City. And when we moved there, we had something in our home we'd never had before, and that was a a crystal chandelier that hung in our dining room. And it had on that chandelier these individual prisms, and they had little hooks on them that attached them to the chandelier. And when I was maybe age 11 or maybe 12, somewhere in there, I would take those prisms. Now, they were smaller than the one that I have in my hand, but I would take them down. I would take one down and I can remember walking over to the window where the sunlight was coming in. And I held that little prism from the chandelier in the light, and I watched it refract into various colors, the various elements of light. And that is when I first learned that light is actually made up of multiple elements. And as we have been stating, there's a lot of parallel between light and also salvation. Christ's death earned so great a salvation, it was so vast that it cannot be conveyed by one concept. And when we look at salvation through the lens of Scripture, we'll see that it refracts into various elements. And we have listed some of those being redemption and propitiation and reconciliation and justification and imputation. And as you look at those various elements, your appreciation for the scope of salvation goes up. And our appreciation for the greatness of our God deepens. So we've been involved in a, a little series where we've been looking at our great salvation. First, we looked at redemption, where we see God, the great emancipator. And then last time, we looked at propitiation, where we see God, the divine provider. And we see that He provided the full legal satisfaction to meet God's wrath as required by His holiness and righteousness. Now, today we come to another element, another facet, and that element is reconciliation. Reconciliation where we see God, the divine restorer. And if you have your Bibles open to Colossians 1, I want to read a few verses from this chapter, beginning with verse 19. And we'll read down through verse 22, and I would invite you just to follow along as I read. 
Paul writes in verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Reconciliation, when we see God the divine restorer. Now, our plan for today as we look at reconciliation involves four different things. Number one, we're going to see that reconciliation is a familiar idea to us. We know this idea from our culture. Second, we're, we're going to look at the biblical background of reconciliation. And then we're going to look at the core meaning of reconciliation. And then lastly, we're going to take a closer look at the key passages in the New Testament that talk about reconciliation. So we're going to look at the fact that it's a familiar idea. It's not a a new idea to us. We're going to look at the biblical background of reconciliation, the core meaning of it, and then we'll be looking more carefully at some key passages. So as we try to understand reconciliation, we need to remember that it's actually a very familiar idea to us. It's a common term in our culture. You might see the term reconcile used in the realm of finances. Now, I know, I know what I'm going to share with you only happens in the Hess household. It's certainly what happened in nobody else's household. But this does happen occasionally in the Hess's household. Maybe you've heard about some people far away who had this problem. But, you know, you have this situation where there is a lack of harmony between the checkbook and the bank statement. I realize none of you have ever had that problem, but we have had that problem. And when there is a disharmony between the checkbook and the bank statement, there are financial repercussions, which we've experienced some. Like, for example, a bounced check or penalty fees, which they're making higher and higher, it seems, every year. And so when you have this lack of harmony, what you need to do is you need to reconcile the checkbook and the bank statement. See, this is a familiar idea to us. We see it not only in the realm of finances, but you might use the word reconcile in the realm of relationships. Maybe you have some friends. Uh, Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be spouses. And there's a problem. There's a lack of harmony. There's alienation. And while there is a lack of harmony and alienation, there are some personal ramifications that come. There can be frustration. There can be loneliness. There can be guilt. And so what the two people need to do is they need to reconcile. Isn't that an interesting word? You know, when I think of the word reconcile, to me, it has a very calm, upbeat sound to it. I have to tell you, it was music to my ears when I hear the statement, the checkbook is reconciled. Ah, it sounds good. And we've all heard a story of of people who were 
alienated from one another, and it's so good to hear they chose to reconcile, and they are restored in their relationship. So this is a familiar idea when we talk about God's reconciliation. It's familiar to us, which leads us then to a second question, and that is, how is the idea conveyed in Scripture? So the second thing we want to look at today is the biblical background of reconciliation. And in order to do that, we don't need to turn there, but I want you just in your minds to go back to the book of Genesis with me, which literally means the book of beginnings. And as the Bible opens up, you will remember that it opens up and everything is in perfect harmony, perfect harmony between God and His creation, certainly between Him and Adam and Eve. But what happens? You remember what happens? Sin enters into the situation, and there's personal ramifications to that. Because of sin coming on the scene, there is estrangement, and there is alienation. In fact, there is death. There is virtually separation that occurs because of that. And it's really interesting when you come to chapter 3 and verse 8, After all that has happened, this estrangement and alienation, it says, the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did Adam and Eve do? Remember? They run and they hide. Why? Because there's alienation. There is estrangement. There is separation because of sin. And eventually, as you track it through the Bible, we know that this alienation, this estrangement because of sin spreads. In fact, it spreads to everyone. It spreads to you and it spreads to me. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And so we also find ourselves in the midst of alienation and estrangement from God, and that leads to disharmony, that leads to separation, and that leads to guilt. One of the classic ways to emphasize this estrangement and alienation and separation between us and God is is a little evangelistic tool called the bridge illustration. And in the bridge illustration, what you have is on one side, you have humanity, and on the other side, that you have God, and there's this gap that exists between them. And it's actually, in reality, a great gulf. At Family Life, when we use a similar thing, we use a picture of the Grand Canyon. It is a great gulf that exists. What does that communicate? The estrangement between humanity and God is severe. It is very severe. There's so many interesting things in in, uh, the book of beginnings. One of the things to me it's very interesting, I find it intriguing, is there's an awesome picture there. Because you have this estrangement, this alienation that takes place between Adam and Eve and God. And Adam and Eve attempt to cover the guilt and the rebellion. So we learn from chapter 3, verse 7, they go out and they get some fig leaves and they try to cover themselves, which is really a picture of human effort to deal with the alienation and the estrangement. 
And later on in the chapter 3 in verse 21, God steps up and if you remember this, he kills some animals. He sacrifices some animals and then he takes those animal skins and says to them, you need to cover yourselves with these animal skins. Which is a picture. It's actually the very first key glimpse we have of the cross because the lesson is that through the shedding of blood, that's how we have to deal with the estrangement and the alienation. The estrangement that we have before God is very severe. I want, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Um, you know, you have the four Gospels, and then you have the book of Acts, and you have the book of Romans. And in Romans 5, the passage we read from, Colossians 1, is one of the key passages which we'll refer back to on reconciliation. But Romans 5 is another one. But I, what, I, what I want us to look at, though, in Romans 5 is how this estrangement between us and God is very severe. Notice verse 6 of Romans 5. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now there's some very important terms in there. The first one is the term helpless. You see, our efforts to reconcile between us and God, there was nothing we could do. Our efforts to reconcile with him were no better than the fig leaves that Adam and Eve tried to come up with. Another key word in verse 6 is the word ungodly, because you see that's a description of us. We dialed God out of our life. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I'm just dialing you out. The estrangement is very severe. Look at verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we weren't passive about sin. We were sinners. We weren't passive. We were overtly active. We were violating God's standards. We fail to conform to his standards. This last Christmas, my mom uh, gave my wife and I a gift that we hadn't asked for, but we really enjoyed having it. It was a liquid crystal radio-controlled clock. And what happens is that clock receives radio signals that come out from the, the world's most accurate clock, and then this little clock we have adjust to that standard. We learn from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says there that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know what that means? It means that we couldn't conform to God's standards. We not only violated them, we couldn't conform to them. We couldn't conform to God's standards any more than a clock with a dead battery could conform to an atomic clock. The estrangement was severe. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You want to talk about a severe alienation? 
We were his enemies. Why? Because we're involved in overt rebellion. I'm doing this my way, God. I will live life my way. I'm doing it my way, not your way. And so the estrangement is very, very severe. But I want you to know something there in verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. God takes the initiative. There's alienation. There's separation, but he takes the initiative, which leads us, by the way, to the core meaning of reconciliation. And it revolves around a word called katalasso, which is K-A-T-A-L-L-A-S-S-O with a long mark over the O, katalasso. Katalasso is a word that comes from a term that means to alter, to adjust, or to change. And it's very basic. The word katalasso means to affect a change. It was used outside of the Bible of restoring a relationship to the original relationship after there had been hostility in that relationship. Katalasso implies disruption and division. And the idea of katalasso is that there is this removal of hostility, this restoration of harmony that God and people like us are reconciled. Now, having gotten that idea of the core meaning, let's talk a little bit more about these key passages in the New Testament. And as we said, one of them is Romans chapter 5. And we learn something important, I think, from verse 8. And verse 8 tells us that the proof of God's love, you want to know what the proof of God's love was? The proof of God's love came at Calvary. That's where it came. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Reconciliation was accomplished through the cross. In verse 10, it says, we were reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son. Now, listen, this is very important. No cross, no reconciliation. So many people miss that. No cross, no reconciliation. But again, who initiates it? We have this alienation, this separation between us and God. Who initiates it? Who steps to the plate? We were helpless. We couldn't do anything about it. Aren't those first couple of words of verse 8 just some of the most beautiful you have ever heard? But God, God initiates. Turn back to the passage we read from at the beginning in Colossians chapter 1, and we see this all the more clearly, that God takes the initiation. Colossians 1 And verse 20 says, the idea was that through Jesus, God would reconcile all things to himself, 
How? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And notice verse 21, although you were formerly alienated, this is descriptions of you and I, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you. How? In his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. No cross, no reconciliation, but God initiated. Probably the classic illustration of reconciliation in all of the Bible comes from the Old Testament. It comes from a book in the Old Testament. It's one that people don't visit very often. It's called the book of Hosea. And in the Old Testament, you have Ezekiel, then you have Daniel, and then next comes Hosea. And in that book, God instructs Hosea to marry Gomer. Now, I don't know about you, but in, 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 in my cultural perspective of the world, Gomer is not a female name to me. In fact, I've only ever heard the name once. And if you're a little older, you might remember there was a character on television called Gomer Pyle. He was an inept TV character who really had a heart of gold. So that's the only Gomer that I've ever heard of. So I have to admit to you, when I read Hosea, I sort of chuckled a little bit. He had to marry Gomer, thinking, who is Gomer? But in his day... (laughs) You know, Gomer was a, a common female name. And so God instructs Hosea to marry Gomer, and he does. But if you follow the story along, you know what happens is that Gomer becomes unfaithful to Hosea. And not just unfaithful, but Gomer leaves their relationship and runs off and becomes involved in prostitution. Now, as a husband, there's a lot of things your wife might do, but I can't think of anything that would be more distasteful than to know that not only was your wife unfaithful and she left, but she went and became immersed in prostitution. And though she turned away from him, Hosea still loved her. And then there came a day in which he found his wife naked in the public square. No doubt he was standing in the shadows and he sees her naked in the public square square being sold at the slave auction. And you can also imagine, um, I could picture myself wanting to stand in the shadows and go, you know what? It's what happens when you leave your husband and you run off and you get involved in prostitution. But you know, that's that's not what Hosea does. 
he steps out of the shadows and he joins in the bidding and he buys his wife, Gomer. And he clothes her. And he brings her back home. And guess what happens? His faithful love to her overwhelms her. And her response is to love him back and have great gratitude for what he did for her. Well, if you know the book of Hosea, you know that that relationship between Hosea and Gomer is really a picture of what Israel had done to God. And I believe it's also a picture of what humanity has done to God and what we have done to God. But here's the idea. Though we have run off and though we were living in rebellion and darkness, God takes the initiative because he says, I've always loved you. And he pays the price to bring us back. And the most amazing thing is that he bought us just as we were, just as Hosea bought her, Gomer, just as she was. He bought us just as we were. He didn't say, wait a minute now, hold on, time out. What you need to do is get get righteous first. If you get righteous, you work on yourself for a while, I'll consider reestablishing a relationship with you. I'll consider reconciliation. No. He bought us just as we were. You see, we were alienated and he initiated. And his plan was to reconcile us. Beautiful word. To remove the hostility and to restore harmony. See, what reconciliation means is this, that he's not mad at us. He's not holding our sin against us. He desires that we come home. And that we enjoy his faithful love for us. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is the other key passage on reconciliation. And I want to read a few verses from it, beginning with verse 18. And, And I want you to know that 2 Corinthians 5 is the power passage on reconciliation. In fact, we could we could probably spend several weeks in these verses. But I want to pull some things out of this power passage on reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, there's a lot here. We learn from verse 18 that God reconciled us to himself. You see that? And we learn in verse 19 
that he's not counting our trespasses against us. You know, we don't shout out a lot of amens and hallelujahs at Wildwood. It's just not our style. If we were in a black church, that would probably happen a lot. But I mean, is there not anything you want to say hallelujah to any greater than this? He's not counting our trespasses against us. I mean, hallelujah, what an incredible truth that is. How did he pull that off? How did he do that? Well, verse 21 that we didn't read really tells us, it says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That's what we looked at last week, that God's justice was propitiated. It was satisfied in Jesus Christ. You remember the gap between humanity and God and the bridge illustration? What happens? A bridge is built over the chasm by the cross. Incredible. That's how he did it, to not count our trespasses against us. One other little thing I want to draw out of this section is something that happens in in verse 19 that confuses uh, people at times. Notice it says in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, through his death, through the death of Christ, the world was brought into a position whereby it could be rescued. You remember what it says, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God opened the doors, you see, for the world to return. So then the question is, why isn't all the world saved? Why aren't all people saved? And some people might look at this and they say, well, you know, what happens is, you know, when he reconciled the world, uh, it's not really a legitimate offer of full reconciliation. But think about this. You take two people and their relationship is broken and one decides, I'm going to try to make this right. I want to reconcile. I want it to be restored. But if the other person refuses, it doesn't make the offer of the first person not legitimate. It's very legitimate. So why aren't all people saved if he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them? Well, what does it say in John 3.16 again? He loved the world. He gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There is an individual appeal even in light of the work of Christ. Look at verse 20 of uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He says there, we Beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, he reconciled the world to himself, but now the idea is there needs to be a response to that. And he's saying, we beg you, be reconciled. An individual response is needed, and it's a response where by faith, we make a life choice to trust in what it says in verse 21. 
that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we trust in his blood and his death for us, that we believe that God did all that was necessary to accomplish reconciliation. But it only really becomes ours when we embrace it by faith. This is amazing stuff. This is amazing stuff. There's something else that amazes me in this section. And it comes in it comes in verse 20. It says we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, if I said to you, well, what is an ambassador? You go, well, I understand. An ambassador, you know, here we have those in America. Um, what an ambassador is is a, representat- a representative of our country. That's what an ambassador is. Uh, actually, no. Technically, no, that's not true. What an ambassador is is a representative of the President of the United States. You see, that's why he appoints them. And the idea is this, that the president is not present everywhere. He's not physically present over in this country or that country, and so he appoints an ambassador to be his representative there. See, that's the idea. Jesus is not visibly present And so it's our assignment to be his ambassador, to be his representative, the one who would represent him in our world where we live. We are to be the one who would announce the good news. Did you see what it said in verse 19? (laughs) I don't know that I'll ever get over what it says at the end of the verse when it says, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The key word there is the word us. Who's included in the us? Is it the, the preacher? You know, the Bible teacher? Look to your left, look to your right. Look behind in front of you. That's who the us is. And has that not just blown you away? Have you thought about that recently? Have you looked in the mirror? (laughs) Have you looked in the mirror and seen who the us is? And even wonder why in the world would God do that? It's the most unbelievable thing I ever heard. In fact, it's indescribable that he would tap me on the shoulder and he would tap you on the shoulder and said, yeah, I have committed to you the word of reconciliation. The message about what I've done, you're the one who communicates it. Our great salvation, we see in reconciliation, God the divine restore. It's an incredible story. It's worthy of our time. 
Now, as we close today, I want to talk about some life response. Having looked at what we've looked at, these four elements of reconciliation, I want to talk about life response. Here's the first life response I think we need to have, and that is be reconciled. There are some of us who have that as a need in our life personally. See, here's what's happened, is that God, the divine restorer, has opened up the door. He's opened up the door, and he's saying, I want you to come home. He's saying, I have always loved you from the day that I created you, and I want you to come home. I want you to enjoy my faithful love for you. But you have to make a life decision to trust in his great work on your behalf. See, if you've never come to know Jesus Christ personally, his message to you today is be reconciled. Here's what he's really saying to you. I have no debt to collect from you. Jesus paid the price. I have taken the initiative. I've done all the work. I'm just waiting for your response. Do you know that Jesus is the pivot point of the universe? And we need to, we need to let people know that. He's the pivot point of the whole universe. You see, either, either a man or a woman or a young person is going to receive reconciliation through Christ or they're going to receive judgment and separation from him forever. He is the pivot point. And his appeal is to be reconciled. Why would you hesitate? Why would you ever hesitate in the face of such great love? And because I don't know everybody's heart, I would just echo the words of Paul. We beg you, be reconciled. Be reconciled. So that's the first life response. The second life response is this. Share the story. Share the good news. We've got good news for people. And so we need to tell it to our friends. And some of you go, I don't know exactly what to say. Listen, I've actually set you up. You've got this whole message. This message is here. And you can get this from our website. You can buy CDs. You can copy it. You can download it. You can utilize it. You can link the message to our website in an email. You can send this through Facebook to all of your friends. You can Twitter this. You can blow out your whole email list and show the link back to this. We need to share the message. Do not hold back because you think, I don't know exactly what to say. We need to share the story. Tony Evans tells of a story of the poet Elizabeth Barrett. And uh, she wanted to get married to another poet, Robert Browning. And her father violently objected to her doing that. And they did get married. And that caused some alienation and some separation. And for 10 years, Elizabeth wrote to her parents asking them to reconcile with her. 
And for a decade, she never got a response. And then one day, a box came in the mail. And she opened the box, and in the box, she found every letter that she had ever written to her father. And none of them had ever been opened. And so her father never knew the depth of her love and her desire to be reconciled with him. Well, men and women, God has written the world a letter. And in that letter, he tells of his love for them and his desire for them to be reconciled to him. And it's really our responsibility to open the letter which is the word of God, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to help people understand how far God has gone to bring them back to himself. And if the message of his letter never gets out enough through to those who need it most, there will be no reconciliation. So it's a motivation for you and for me to pick up our calling as his ambassadors and to share the story. And we have a great one to tell. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. What an incredible book this is. What a privilege to own one. What a greater privilege to study it. What an even greater thing to allow it to change our life. And I would pray, Father, that there's no one who hears my voice who learns of what God has done to reconcile them, who would choose not to be reconciled by faith, by trusting in Christ this very day, to say today is the day I want to choose to be reconciled fully with Jesus Christ. There's never been a time that you've done that. How about today being the day? And Father, for those of us who know you, thank you for the privilege of having our soul stirred again in incredible ways when we think about what an amazing God we've got who did all of that for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.